Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Uh, it is Friday the 5th of the 2nd. Michael, how have you been? Um, I started well, Gary. I'm starting to decline now, so let's hope we can keep it going. Two quick things before we start. One, and this was sent on to me by a listener, is a defence of Tommy Tiernan, particularly Tommy Tiernan's uh, jokes about how he would be able to kill 10 to 12 million Jews if he was running the Holocaust. Uh, in the Irish Times. I'm going to include a link to that uh, below this because it's Kevin Myers. It's usually a good read and it's interesting to see his defense of it and his line is basically that it, it's clearly parody. It, sh- it should not be taken seriously. That was one. There was also a, a couple of episodes ago we talked about a French woman who was neither living nor dead and said it was one of the few actually Kafka-esque situations we'd ever seen because people misuse that massively. Now, a listener also pointed out a situation very similar to that happens in a book called uh, Colonel Chabert. Yes. And I had never read Colonel Chabert. So I went and I read it and it's quite good. So I'm going to include a link in the bottom of this podcast that will bring you to uh, the full publication of Colonel Chabert um, in English because I figured that might be useful for people. Who wrote that? Remind me. It is the man with the uh, most easily mocked surname in French literature. The man with the most easily... God. Oh, Balzac. Yes, 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 yes. Honoré de Balzac, yeah. I, for years I thought the man was a it was a, it was a lady uh, until I realised when I looked at it the last time that it was actually one E rather than two. So there you go. But it's, the, it's a similar story as that French woman, someone who was declared dead and then just will not stop showing up to stuff. Maybe it's a French thing. Maybe so. But anyway, I will include a link to it in the bottom of this. If you're uh, if you're jonesing for some French uh, literature, it'll it'll do you. So I suppose we'll start with Michael. Um, the Irish Times has finally taken the soup. It was a long time coming, but they've finally done it. All uh, right. So I'm, I'm assuming it's either it's a consommé or a bouillabaisse, something nice and sophisticated, not like a lumpy Irish stew kind of yolk. Well, no, I've been I've been reading the submission by the Irish Times Group to the Future of the Media Commission, uh, which they were kind enough to upload publicly by reporting on it in the Irish Times. The Future of the Media Commission. Why? Why precisely do we need to pay for a Future of the Media Commission? Isn't the Future of the Media really in the hands of the media and the people who consume the media? And isn't it, should we just leave it up to them? It's absolutely integral. We pay for a Future of the Media Commission. Because we need to decide how we're going to pay for the media. Well, my understanding was that you went into a news agent, for example, and as you like to say, Gary, money can be exchanged for goods and services. In this case, you can exchange that money for a, a copy of the Irish Times in the paper form. You can have it posted to you, which I know is part of the issue around the submission. Or you can go online and use your credit card and they will send it to you electronically down the interweb. So uh, I don't see that there's actually a substantial problem with the relationship between how you fund it. That's how you fund it. You can also get people to put things in your newspaper saying, oh, we sell patented liver salts, cure all ills and pep you up. Johnson's liver salts, have some today. That kind of thing. Yes, but you see, Michael, that doesn't, that doesn't cover the public good that the Irish Times clearly believes that it delivers to people. And I'm just going to note on this, and this is a really minor thing. 
we've written submissions to various committees and I've written submissions to various committees under for other organisations and uh, I've never started one the way the Irish Times starts this one. Yeah. And you just come out of it with an overwhelming sense that this is a group with an unhealthy level of ego. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the... They're ta- they, they start by talking about a series they did called the Lives Lost series, and then ask you to... They say, but imagine a future where Lives Lost would never have been written, because the Irish Times could not afford to fund such a labour-intensive project. Or worse, it no longer existed as a publisher. Now, I found that very easy, because I've never heard of that uh, project. And I subscribe to the Irish Times. Do you find that easy? That's a word that you don't find difficult to imagine. Well, I do think it's a bit interesting that the thing that they're hanging their entire thing on, their entire glorious opening of what they do that makes this worthwhile, is a project which I, regularly paying them to read their content, have never even fucking heard of. <laughs> More fool you. Um, does it still do Doonesbury? I don't think so. I think they stopped that. Uh, okay, then it, but it still does the crossword. It does, but here's another line from the from the opening of it, Michael. And this is, you know, this is the imagining the terrible future. So you've got to get in that in that time frame. Mm. A future where award winners Fintan O'Toole, columnist of the year, and Miriam Lord, political journalist of the year, were without their primary platform and place of employment. No, Gary, no. Say it ain't so. Say it ain't so, Gary. Stop your frightening me now. A world where Fintan O'Toole didn't have his primary platform. I, I, I would have to just move to Indonesia to distance myself from the pain because I hear they have really good street food as well. That strikes me as, as Ortiz sort of line when they come out about salaries and go, well, of course we've got to pay them that or the BBC would just snap them up. <laughs> where is Miriam Lord going to get employed other than the Irish Times? Irish Examiner? Which is owned by the Irish Times. RTE. She's too edgy for RTE. Edgy? Relatively. Well, I don't know how much she's been. I thought that the fun... The, I'm, I'm obviously missing something here. Isn't the purpose of newspapers to get people in and train them up so that they can then go on and work for a political party while in government advising them and how to handle no, the media? No, no, not at all, Michael. There are many fine PR organisations they also supply people to. Yes, obviously. Um, usually they work for them after whoever they got the job with in government has ceased to be in government and they have to go and do something else. And then they work for one of the very many fine media or PR organisations or in la- our lobby groups as well. Or- I mean, you know, it's, it's a noble profession path. Absolutely. Uh, just, I, I, just as a shameful aside, Michael, that I'm not sure if I've ever said in the podcast before. Yes. I have, like, I've been involved in political stuff for quite a while. Uh, I do remain, like, I'm very interested in it. I know people involved in it. And I've met many politicians, and I, I, I like politics and governance and things like that. Yes. I have never successfully finished a Miriam Lord piece. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a bit like Muesli, isn't it? You start it with all of the best intentions in the world. You're not going to have Rice Krispies or Cocoa Pops today. You're going to have Muesli because it's good for you. And somewhere around halfway through, you just think, I just, oh, I can't do this anymore. And just as I was saying it, as I was saying that to you, I was thinking, but so many people say it's good. And then I sort of went, actually, I don't know anyone who's ever said it's good. Yeah, but Gary, lots of people say muesli is good too. No, no, I, but I don't, 
I've the strong sense that people have said that Miriam Lord is insightful and good, but when I try and actually think of those people, they just sort of fade away to mist. Miriam Lord, didn't she win the prize last year for political columnist of the year or something? Of course she won the prize, because she's the, she's the dull diarist of the Irish Times. Who else are they going to give it to? <laughs> is she the diarist? I thought there was another one that was a diarist there. Was, is O'Regan not the diarist? I lose track. No, I don't even have strong opinions on her. She's just there. And she's very successful and she keeps winning awards. So every now and then I'll try and read something she's written. And then you get about a quarter of the way through it and you're kind of going, why am I reading this? It's like reading the back of a packet of fucking rice. This is why you have more than one paper. You have more than one you have a choice. If you're looking for politics, you don't see him much these days. I don't know if anything's happened to him, but Jody Corkin was somebody I always enjoyed reading in the Indo. On politics, uh, Eilish O'Hanlon, I still, as you know, I think is the best journalist. Or does Eilish O'Hanlon win prizes? I I wouldn't have thought so because Eilish O'Hanlon is actually kind of edgy, as opposed to like acceptably edgy. I, I read her all anything she writes, I read, and I will still she still has the. I never quite know where she's going to come down on something or what how she's going to approach something. She also writes so well. And she's so insightful. But I don't, off the top of my head, no, that's off the top of my head, that means feck all, but I'm not sure if she has won loads of stuff. But I think she's, I mean, serious quality. Larissa Nolan is another one. Larissa Nolan's a good one. Larissa's also, she's edgy. Larissa is not going to get a job anytime soon in RTE. So maybe somebody in, in politics might give her something, but she's a bit different. There's an energy as well to Larissa, which is quite good. Yeah, I've, 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 I've briefly met Larissa, and she's good crack. But yeah, she is. She's, a, she's fairly energetic. Um, and I like the way that they have to put the like, columnist of the year in brackets, political journalist of the year in brackets. It also slightly reminds me, and it's a bit unfair, but for those who are of my vintage, they'll remember that in the days before we had lots of television channels here, we only had one, literally, what RT1. Even the, then maybe when RT2 came... But even before RT2 happened, there was a thing called the Jacobs, the Jacobs TV and Radio Awards, which was basically every, because there was also no independent radio. So basically people from RTE came along and were awarded prizes for putting television on RTE. It was the most incestuous and ridiculous thing. It was a big night and people would win prizes and stand there and be all emotional and go off and get pissed at the Garda Club afterwards. It was great fun. It, I, I, in the Irish media market, I I wonder if these things are a little bit like that, because let's face it, I'm got. I mean, I I, I not that I think that being a journalist in, in an Irish newspaper today is is cushy, because the money ain't brilliant by any manner of means. Um, the number of people are actually on staff and full time. If you look at the kind of staff the papers would have had thirty, forty years ago, in comparison to what they have now, everybody is stretched out and everybody's being expected to write far more than they would have been. And the Irish press is gone, the Irish press, Sunday press, is, they're, they're out of the market, so you have, there are less opportunities and less diversity of opinion as well, I suppose. But So it's not, a, it's not a fun place to be. But, you know, it's one of those things, Gary, at the end of the day, do we need, are we going to protect the wooden barrels? We're not making wooden barrels anymore. People don't want them. The phrasing of this, and remember, these are people who write for a living. A future where award winners were without their primary platform and place of employment. Yeah, I know. I, 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 one, one couldn't help but think a little bit unkindly. I think, well, in fairness, it's the Irish Times, so it's not, 
writing isn't really what it's about. And I did think that line, if you're a good writer, and God knows, I mean, it's uh, that's a hard trade and I would never, it's never something I would say myself. I say that I would hope that at times I write well, I try, and other times I'm sure I fail miserably. And there are lots and lots of people who will write much better than I do. But one of the things you're aware of is you try and avoid the cliche, and God Almighty, that line, does that not sound to you like you're in the cinema and the trailers are coming up and it's imagine a world without Fintan O'Toole. It's like a disaster movie coming at <laughs> Primary yeah. platform and place of employment yeah. is consultant speak. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not, not what you'd call English. But it also seems to imply in it that if we didn't exist, they would just get work elsewhere. Which is sort of, why do you need to be there? Because we hire them. But also if we weren't here, someone else would. Yeah, but that's... On the other hand, th- their concern is that if they weren't there, then they wouldn't have a platform. But surely if they're so brilliant, they would get a platform. Surely, as we're speaking now, Sky Television or The Guardian in England is salivating at the prospect of the Irish Times going under, that they would be able to snatch from the offices on Delir Street the jewel that is Fintan O'Toole, and he'll get another Orwell Prize. I don't understand any of this, Gary. There's no point in it. I've said to you before, and anybody who's ever got my blog in the days before, I, I, I've always referred to Fintan O'Toole as one of the small mysteries of Irish life. I don't understand it. I never will. I have now reached the point in my life where, like the Buddha, I simply accept it and I let go. So the Irish Times then goes on to say what would happen if the, if the Irish Times wasn't there. The shape of what might replace us is already evident. A digital world where the liberties and freedoms associated with the internet are offset by a Wild West-style free-for-all, open to abuse by the irresponsible and malevolent, dominated by the loudest and the most base, sowing division and fomenting unrest. In other words, people with opinions that are offensive to Irish Times readers or the Irish Times editorial board might say things that people might read. No, Michael, you say that, but then they say that that world would have little tolerance of different points of view or opportunity for reasoned and responsible discussion. Oh, 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 no, sorry, horses, horses holding, Gary, horses. How many, describe the diversity, the, the ecological diversity of the rainforest that is the Irish Times. Tell me about that world, Gary. You say that they're, you imply that they're not a diverse organisation, but how, Michael, could you have an organisation that is not diverse, and yet puts Patsy McGarry, a man who hates organised religion, in its religious affairs slot. That is diversity. That is that is intellectual diversity, Michael. You've got to admit, that's not what you'd expect. Does Patsy hate it? I'm, I like to feel that he has like a, a level of like low-simmering contempt. I know Patsy's been friendly with many members of the clergy uh, over the years. Yes, but only the type who own guitars. No, 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 that's not fair. I, he was, he, I know one priest in particular he was very friendly with who never owned a guitar, but did do a very nice line in uh, in less red satin-lined uh, cloaks and lots of aftershave and smoking fags and drinking wine. He, he was a man of impeccable liberal progressive credentials, I would say, I suppose. Yes, Patsy's sort. He was a sociologist. I do. I, 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 I remember chatting with someone from one of the churches a while ago, and they were saying they'd been trying to get something placed in the Irish Times for ages. I asked, you, who, who have you been sending to? And they said, Patsy McGarry. And I was like, ah, <laughs> you're not the right sort of church to be going to Patsy McGarry. I'll, having said that, and I will, I will give him this, Patsy McGarry recently wrote an article on the, um, 
mother and baby homes in the Irish Times, and I'll give a link to it in the, in the bottom of this of this podcast, which is legitimately well thought out and good. I thought it was an excellent piece. And in fact, to give the, the Times its due, uh, a lot of the reporting in the Times, I think, has been has been very good. I thought the, the report, the first, one of the first articles they published was the uh, Lahi, or Lahi or Lahi wrote an article uh, on the basis, I imagine, of the executive summary. I don't know, but it was a very, it was, it was, a, I thought, a good, a good article and very fair and reasonable and a good representation of, of the report. So I think actually the reporting on, on the mother maybe homes, not all, but a lot of it has been pretty decent. I mean, I, I will, as I said before, I, I pay for the Irish Times. I've subscribed to the Irish Times for years. I unsubscribed for a while because they, they wrote something. And it was an editorial that pissed me off so much. I was like, no. <laughs> but other than that, I've, I've subscribed for years. And they do have some really good people in them, like insightful, informed people who will just say what they think is, is true about something. But they don't tend to be the people that they highlight. No, they've had a couple of hires. But at least I feel like they've been hires in the last couple of years uh, talk, writing about business and finance and stuff that I think have been very good. But they're certainly not their superstars. That you know, the, the people that people stand out, the ones they put on the on the telly, like, like Miriam Lord, Roisin Ingle, Una Mullally, uh, Katie Ho- is Katie Holland writing for the Times. I think it's Katie Holland is writing for the Times, is she? And of course, Fintan. Right, so, so what the what the Irish Times want, and why I say they they've taken the soup is that they want many things. But one of the things that they want is. Uh, funding of internships, Michael, and upskilling. Upskilling, yes. Upskilling, and, uh, you know, supporting journalistic trainings. But, Michael, but such measures must be a means to an end. Training and transition should lead to positive future career prospects of those involved in sustainable and stable indigenous media sector. This is likely to require continued state support to sustain journalistic employment. Can I translate that? Jobs for the boys and the girls. Permanent and pensionable jobs, probably. That's what sustainable means. What I would say, and it's, there's just a good bit, of, um, good bit of timing on this, is that Sinn Féin have just proposed a bill to allow the watchdog to examine the finances of state-funded bodies. Which, by the way, I think is actually a very good idea. It just amuses me that the Irish Times wants to become one of those bodies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That there's a... There's a, p- a pleasing symmetry to that. Yes, yes, there is. Can you imagine now the Doll Committee? Because that to be a Doll Committee, and let's imagine the Doll Committee is, oh, 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 God, my name, I'm blanking. The finance spokesman from Donegal, uh, from Sinn Fein. I think that O'Loughlin. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm it doesn't matter anyway. Even Mary Lou herself, any of the prominent Shinners, grilling the Irish Times editor and our associates about how they were spending the state's money. That would be, I would, I think I might even pay subscription fee to whatever channel was carrying that to have a look to enjoy that process. No, I actually, there is a, um, there is an interesting point here because currently uh, the only organizations that can be audited by the Comptroller and Auditor General are those who accept funding of more than 50%. So Brian Stanley has come out and put out a bill which would allow that to happen to um, it would basically remove the 50% threshold so if you accepted state funding you could be required to get um, 
to get audited like this. I'd be curious, and I, and I don't expect you to know the answer to this. Maybe we'll find out and come back to it another time. That thing, that, that kind of thing always interests me that when they say state funding, because a lot of the time in this country, the, the state funding may, be, may travel on rather circuitous routes that may not come directly from the department or directly from the but it goes from one group into another group and then goes to an NGO and then that NGO then gives a grant to another NGO and so on. Why, uh, so you can, is the money, as they say, fungible or not fungible? Where does you end up with, you, you can look at it, well, actually, we don't get any direct grants from the government. No, but you do get a lot of money from other NGOs who do get their funding from the government. So precisely what, cons- what, uh, you consider to be government funding is something that isn't always clear. So I, I, I have my view on this, Michael, is that the Irish Times says there could be, there will be resistance to the idea of um, you know, the state having the right to examine the finances of an organisation that receives less than fifty percent uh, of their uh, income from the state. Yeah, from the exchequer. And my view on that would roughly be that if you accept money from the state directly. Mm-hmm. Your books should be, uh, the state should have the right to look at your books in full and that those books should be made public at an accelerated time scale above and beyond that and having higher uh, a higher standard of transparency and accounting than would typically be acquired for an organization of your size because you are being given public money directly from a state as opposed to someone deciding to give you money as a donation. But I would also like to see it so that if you accept money from the state indirectly as in if it gives it to let's say the national women's council of ireland and they give you some of that money that that should also apply to you possibly at a lower level of of uh, severity but absolutely if it's public money you should be forced to show everything and if you don't want to do that michael don't take the money that's the that's the devil the sort of the faustian bargain that lots of organisations have to face. They say, because it is inevitably the case. I mean, okay, there may not be oversight at the level of auditing from direct, but it is, if you take money from the government, it's going to come with strings attached. That's just the nature of the beast. That the, the manner in which you dispose of that or disperse that money, the kinds of, of the operations you get involved with, even if the pressure is, even if not explicit direction, that you're going to get pressure and you're going to be aware that if you want, once you've taken the money, you'll want to keep getting the money and that's going to involve you going in a certain direction. And that's why you have charities which evolve from being, when they evolve from being funded by large base of individual, small individual donors, maybe a few large private donors, and they evolve into something which is primarily funded via the government or NGOs, then they change their nature. They stop doing what they, their original charism or mission was and they become a different thing. So I think that this is a natural progression and a perfectly reasonable one. Yeah, I'll, I'll, they are, the Irish Times is absolutely right about resistance. There are many organisations that are going to go mental about this. Again, I just wonder, and maybe maybe there isn't even one, but I would be curious to see how many organisations who get funding from the government receive 49% of their funding from the government. No, maybe not 49%, because you can't... You can't be certain about income in a year if you have any donations coming in or your project base. So you'll want you'll want some leeway either side. You need a margin of error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're yeah. You know, it's like what is it? If you go over two hundred euro, you have to on a political donation, you have to register the donation. 
Yeah, yeah. And you get a shocking amount of donations at just below the level you have to register. But I think it's up to and including 200 euro. You can give 200 euro. And there's no malevolence in it. It just happens. Just the way it is. And you might find families, Gary, where seven or eight people in the same family gave all gave 200 euro. It's just one of those things. Some families can be incredibly generous, Michael. I mean, I've I've certainly noticed a trend in uh, charitable do- donations in relation to certain political aspects. Where you know, if the husband donates, the wife is certainly going to donate. So it's you know, people of a similar type just flock together. It's also nice to see families coming together around issues that they care about. I mean, sometimes without even seeming to realise that they'd given you the money. (laughs) Yeah, that happens too. They might forget. But I think that just showcases how generous of spirit they are. That they don't even want to admit that they were aware of the money. Yeah, particularly when you have situations where little Kleena actually gave her communion or confirmation money. It's just just good people, Michael. Good people. Civic-minded people. And, you know, we need more of them, Gary. So speaking of other um, civic-minded people who are being unfairly attacked, Michael. Yes. Rumours, rumours have begun to spread in uh, in Brussels about the Article 16 fiasco. Oh, God, no. And Billy Kelleher, the uh, the MEP, has come out and said that, you know, he, he wants these rumours to stop. He wants, you know, this to be... Uh, so people can stop and, you know, go back to the important business of the EU, which is something at this point, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. No one has apparently seen von der Leyen in a while now, so I'm not sure what she's doing. But um, anyway, the rumor is that a, uh, a particular member state told the commission to put in uh, Article 16 and to invoke it. Yeah. And Kelleher says that what we know is that in the morning of Friday, the 29th of January, there was no mention of invoking Article 16 in the Commission. Yet by early afternoon of the same day, it was included. Rumours are spreading that it came from a member state government. Full transparency is now required. Uh, there can be no vagueness or hiding behind collective responsibility. We need definite answers. There's also the issue of the timing where uh, not we should point out our our the our, the, uh, our man in Havana or our woman in Brussels, Mairead McGuinness, the European Commissioner for Financial Affairs, uh, who got the job. Remember, because the Irish Times broke the golf gate, Gary. Well, the Irish Examiner, but so the Irish Times by proxy. They broke that story, and imagine a world where Golfgate hadn't happened. Probably a better world, actually. We wouldn't have dragged the Supreme Court's name through the dirt and achieved effectively nothing. And Phil Hogan wouldn't have had to resign. And Phil Hogan might have noticed that uh, this was happening. Or Phil Hogan might have had somebody who had pointed out to him as trade commissioner uh, in this context that this was happening. Whereas Murray said, I put my hands up on behalf of the commission. This has not been good for the European Commission. I did hear uh, Murray McGuinness talking about this. And I thought her phrasing was very interesting. She said that the Article 16 clause had not been brought to her attention, which is very different from saying it was not in the document I was given. Well, according to the Financial Times, the team of European commissioners, which takes decisions collectively based on the principle of collegiality, received the final draft of the export control regulation, including the activation of Article 16, 30 minutes before it was due to be adopted. Mm. It's not a terribly long document, though. 
Yeah, but Gary, who's time to read? I mean, you, need, you I'm sure most of these people have people to read for them. This is a, I think, maybe I'm young. This is a, a version of the thing where you tell people what they need to know, but in such a way that they can always deny that they ever heard it. And also, I mean, I would say to that, yes, 30 minutes sounds very short, but there's 30 minutes where you literally get it 30 minutes beforehand, and there's 30 minutes where the thing is being knocked back and forth for days. <laughs> and it's just a sort of, it was finalised 30 minutes before, but you know exactly what's in it for you know, maybe a single provision by that point. Yeah. Uh, I did. I have I have been asking around just to see what the general feeling is towards Mairead McGuinness and uh, whether this is a sort of, there was nothing she could have done or where the hell was McGuinness? Well, I think that would that would depend on which parliamentary party meeting you're at. Yeah, I have noticed a, um, a split, Michael, but I haven't been quite able to put my finger on why that might be. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it odd? It was. It's odd that it wasn't such a big issue at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, but many, many people did raise the subject of the... Now, we should point out that she is the commissioner. She is the commissioner for the whole of Europe. She is not there in any sense as Ireland's person on the ground, you know, joking aside. She is above all that nonsense of nationality. And what's... what's well, vaccine nationalism is the is the phrase du jour, but that small petty parochial politics. She's above that, Michael. I think that might have been like a lot easier of a sell if we if we the Irish government had not directly led to the sacking of Phil Hogan. Yeah, demanded it and insisted on it when they wouldn't do it because he was our commissioner because he came from our country. So now to sort of go well, it's not the Irish commissioner. I think we may have weakened that slightly. Little bit, in in action and deed. Yeah, I think that I think that has been slightly watered down as it been. So the Germans have already come out and said it wasn't us. People are sort of going internally in the Berlimont that this may just be Van der Leyen's uh, press office or her press people just trying to spin something. Her allies, but I don't know. She's very close to Germany apparently, so. This doesn't like what. What is her advantage here to make it look like the Germans did it? Because maybe she's not trying to make. Maybe she thought, "Oh God, we'll get someone else." I mean, let's face it. Her first instinct was to grab to, to grab a passing Latvian and throw him under the bus. And then when people went, "You mean the Latvian who's second in command is the person who negotiated that, and presumably therefore knows what it would do?" Yeah. And then there was a sort of no, not that Latvian. I was saying I was talking to a couple of German friends of mine who were involved and whose family have long been involved in the CDU, which is the governing party in Germany, and we're talking about the the lady in question, and they said that in Germany Ursula has been regarded with almost a degree of admiration, is that in her capacity through her whole political career to rise to a certain point, make a hames of it, and just before she's going to be found out, managed to be promoted out of it. it. seems like a bizarre way of running a country, particularly a place like Germany where people actually expect things to work. The problem Ursula has now is there's nowhere else to go. You know, there isn't anywhere else she, can, she can't escape to unless, I don't know, she's going to become general secretary to the UN or short set. So she, she's, I suppose, maybe she's just not used to the position she's casting around for anybody. Maybe she's going to tr- Slovenia. It was the Slovenians that did it. I mean, the thing the thing I find here when people are saying this could be von der Leyen trying to deflect blame is that if I was involved in this situation and I was opposed to von der Leyen, I would have said this is something we should spread. 
because she needs the Germans on side. And if they think she's trying to screw them, that looks terrible on her. If someone on her team actually suggested she do this, that would be an incredible level of incompetence. Why, why would you anger the people who are your primary supporters? I don't know, Gary. It, 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 as for the idea that they're trying to pin it on the Germans, that doesn't seem quite... I mean, I'm not there. I'm not connected. I'm just reading the reports from the European papers and their own papers on the reaction immediately afterwards. And there was quite a bit of reporting saying that the Germans were really pissed off about the nature of the thing because they should have... Not that they particularly maybe cared about the political consequences for Ireland, for the North, for Britain, and on the specific issue of the border, but rather that it was done in such a way that they should have been consulted, they should have been part of this, that this was not the way that this was done. And the Germans are quite touchy these days about proper procedures and not being excluded from decisions where they're supposed to be included, particularly in the con in the context of the fact that the, the German political classes at the local level are very unhappy with the whole vaccine thing and the procurement etc and Ursula is very connected to that so I don't know it's that the idea that the Germans maybe I mean there, there is there would be a political incentive for the Germans to do this but it's not large enough for them to do it like this now France on the other hand could see France doing something like this because the French vaccine program is imploding is not good no and i mean the french have been trying to talk down astrazeneca to quite a high degree but before they had enough facts on the ground to actually establish what was happening because they needed to go badly they needed to be bad because they are taking so much shit from people internally about it we not nobody really knows what's happening inside sanofi and how it's going about the what the uh, the prognosis is there but i did talk to an italian who said in the middle of absolute chaos in Italy, and a lot of people believing this is, they're really in the last chance saloon now. If, if Draghi gets rejected for, uh, as the next premier, because anyway, we won't get into that because that gets far too complicated and nobody gives a fuck except people like me. However, the one comment that was made was it looks like the, the Italian vaccine may now possibly be ready for licensing before the French, which would give the Italians, God love them, a great deal of pleasure but would also really be embarrassing for, for France and French, French, for French pharma. Not likelihood it won't happen. Maybe Sanofi are actually have managed to get a hold of whatever the problem was and they've rectified it and they're bursting on. And we hope that's the case. We want everybody to be successful in this. We don't wish anybody ill. But yeah, there is an element with the French. The French look like more likely... Uh, more likely culprits. Of course, this could all be nonsense. It just could just be internal rumours. But it's it's certainly interesting to uh, see. And it has it does have a fr certain French style to it. Yeah, because they don't care. La France and nobody else. Everybody devil take the hindmost. Nobody else is nobody else is in the equation. And I mean, if it pisses off the British, oh, better again. You might not aim for that, but it's a great benefit. Yeah, roast beef. So we will see what happens with that. That will be uh, good fun. And then I just wanted to uh, to close on, on something, Michael. You may not have heard, but the Greens have voted, uh, amongst other government parties, to um, increase the level of nuclear power in Ireland. <laughs> you see, if Gary, if the wish was father to the thought, that would be 
very well. Now, what the Greens, of course, actually have done is they've pushed through with this sensible and courageous decision to stop any further exploration for gas, natural gas or oil in our territory. Because we, you know, what would we need that stuff for? It's not like we're importing it anyway. It's not like we've shut down, let's say, peat production and um, let's say agreed that there would be no new license handed out for offshore oil or gas exploration. Or the fact that the United States, which left the, which did, which under President Trump had left the Paris Accords, but actually was one of the very few countries to succeed in meeting the demands. In fact, slightly better than the expectations of the Paris Accords on climate change because it had increased so much of its use of natural gas. So God knows why we'd want that, that all natural gas stuff to be ex- explore exploration. So the Greens, you, you were saying the Greens have a plan now to roll out a series of small nuclear plants across the country? Oh, no. No, it's the Green Party, Michael. They have no fucking plans of anything. But inadvertently, that's what they'll do. Of course, I think the, the Celtic interconnector to uh, northwest France isn't expected until 2025. Yeah. And actually, that could have been pushed back by now. I have no idea what's happening there. So when that's done, we'll be able to directly take power from nuclear plants in France, uh, thereby giving us clean, green energy, Michael. Oh, God. I mean, we're, we're committed to this, what, 50% reduction by 2030? Yeah, 50% uh, reduction by 2030. Um, have you seen how much carbon uh, emissions fell this year, Michael, or fell last year? Well, see, that's the thing. That I think that you know, people often want to concretize because it's very hard to get any kind of sense for anybody. What does it mean? What would you have to do in order to achieve that kind of a drop? What the Green Party wants is a 7% fall in carbon emissions year on year. So this year, where, what, March was it? Where the, the really heavy restrictions came in? Yes. Irish carbon um, emissions have fallen by 6.9%. Which is not quite enough to meet the seven percent target i think it's it's i think it's close enough it gives us a general idea but yeah and that's the point to make isn't it to, to say to the good people if you want to know what we would have to do to our economy if you'd want to know how we'd have to modify our behavior it's basically a, a pandemic economy nobody flies anywhere people don't drive anywhere you shut down all the hotels and the bars and you shut the shops and people don't consume and People don't work and you unemployment at 25% and hundreds of thousands of people out of work. However, you can just about hit your target for carbon emissions in that context. So if you, if we want to achieve this, what that's what our economy, that's what our life is going to be. What you have been experiencing at the level of economic activity for the last year or so is what the Greens want us to be doing permanently oh sorry michael i said 6.9 it's actually 5.9 oh so we're way off then i um i i remember we were having this this discussion when the uh when finifal accidentally signed up to that manifesto that basically committed them to this yes and we were saying that's great but how do you do that i'm hearing a lot from ngos that it's possible and you know there's stuff like you know improving um power generation switching to renewables haven't seen anyone actually come back with it. Here are exactly the steps we will need to take. 
and this is how it will be done. So there's no real targets on any of this, Michael, other than the end figure. Well, if we all just put good insulation in, I'm sure that would that would work. And we had electric cars. We all drive Teslas and we put insulation in the attic. That'll sort it out. But if you go to people and you're, well, what we need to do is we need to take the, the, uh, the level of transport from this year and the level of industry from this year and we need to increase it by oh you know about 20 percent and then we need to do that and then next year we need to increase that by seven percent and then after that and after that and in 10 years you'll probably have died anyway so (laughs) so at the end of the day it doesn't really matter does it here's here's the thing when we talk about this if we were able, if we actually, weirdly enough, if we did use nuclear power, we would have a substantial improvement in this because it's much more efficient. But even that in its own would be nowhere near enough. The scale of reduction they're talking about is incredible. And I, I, there's been a lot of, like, we have to do this. And not a lot of, here is how we actually can do it. And this is possible. Well, there's bicycles and there's no cars around College Green. And there's recycling, and there's no more peat briquettes. And there's, oh yeah, I said that, there's putting in extra uh, insulation. Oh, and Teslas, we all drive Teslas and Priuses. But we only have one car for every 500 people. I can't remember, what was it? One car for every village of 500 people or something? So the, the EPA are calling for, they're saying that, well, after this year, when, when you know, when we... Um, when we go back to how we were, emissions will go up. So we can't do that, Michael. We need a green stimulus and implementation of ambitious policies and measures. And it's all shit like that. That's not a policy. That's a fucking aspiration. So so what are the lists of measures that they're proposing? All the costed specific measures that they have lined out that are going to achieve this? Pooh. Um, yeah. Anyway, so... Uh, they don't exist, and to the extent they do exist, they are not quantified. They're just invest more in um, in green energy. Yeah, like the Germans have done. Yeah, that went fucking tremendously, didn't it? Yeah, that that's been such a success. Uh, what was it over ten years? One hundred and twenty billion. I mean, it's then the subsidies. And then the subsidies on, on solar, the huge amounts of money on solar and on wind, until they came to the point and said, you know what, this ain't working. And we have a dear electricity and we don't have enough of it. Let's open up the, the brown coal mines again. So here's, here's an interesting one, Michael. The transport sector on its own are down 17% this year. Okay. Right. Now, over about that would be the fall required over about three years under the Green Party's plan. So the level of transport we saw this year is what they want to have within three years and then to reduce that over the next seven. Yeah. This, right now, I can't remember the last time I drove more than two kilometers. Right. Yeah, this is true. It's it's going to be difficult to keep this right when people need to go to work. Yeah. Unless there is no work. And just, I mean, simple stuff. Vir- virtually every, I mean, all the hotels that are shut, uh, all that, all the light, the heat, the electricity, the air conditioning, the kitchens, all those restaurants, all those bars, all just the whole, the, the tourism sector, the, the, the hospital sector, all that energy that will have to be produced. And the people that will go have to use energy and 
have to get to and from those places of business that they're not doing. Just by that alone, you're going to see, uh, you know, come on. It's it's not good enough anymore. It shouldn't be good enough anymore just to issue pious aspirations and prayers and pretend that this isn't going to have a massive impact on poor people. Because, Gary, yet again, it's an example of Dwyer's sixth law of politics. If you're wealthy, you can afford a little bit of socialism. It's the same for this. You can afford it. But if you're poor, you're screwed. I mean... There's lots of good in the environmentalist movement. Like there is legitimately good parts. But on stuff like this, they've never been good. The actual, and here's how we'll do that, and here's the number. But the problem now is it's, it's people who should know better. I read a report from um, Stanford the other day. Yeah. Um, Stanford Earth. And it was, um, it was from September, I think, last year. And it was talking about this. And, you know, how we can half energy carbon emissions by 50% by 2030. And it wasn't focusing purely on Ireland. But one of the points it made was that um, you know, solar, wind, those technologies are on uh, exponential trajectories. And if those are maintained, they'll half emissions by 2030 on their own. Now, the issue with that might not be readily apparent to the, the listener, but it's this. Exponential trajectories are very difficult to sustain just because of the nature of exponential growth. Yeah, of course. And the problem with a lot of the solar and wind technology has been scalability and, well, the economics of it for a a lot of it. So to simply go, well, exponential growth will increase for the next 10 or when this was written 11 years and that will, um, you know, that'll get us 25% of it right off the bat is not a projection it's, again, an aspiration. And it, there's tons of stuff like that. It's fingers crossed and hope. And then, I mean, I, then they were saying about, well, electric vehicles could have a, a 90% market share by 2030. Uh, which... Uh, well, yeah, it could. If they decide to make it illegal to drive anything else. But then you go back to the previous point. The impact that you deem that to have will be on two things. So if the... Earlier research that we, we talked about, I think, last year from some of the German um, institutes that said the initial pollution from constructing an electric car is higher than a petrol or diesel car. Yes. And they work it out over the long term. What I would say to that is it's a rapidly innovating field. So the likelihood of someone having a car for long enough for that to actually matter could be questionable in and of itself. But they are saying, well, if you do that, then that will have the following reduction. But they base that in the assumption that exponential trajectories are maintained in energy production because all of these cars need to use that. Yeah, and they, they, and hopefully they will, but they still haven't cracked, cracked properly the, the, the problems with the batteries and the problems with disposal and the rare element, the rare earth element elements, and, and also there is a. All of these cars are, are right now are being that people are looking at them because it's great because they're they are massively subsidised. But there's no way you're going to be able to maintain the level of subsidy both on fuel and on the cars themselves if you go to a point where 90% of car users in the country are using those. I mean, just the loss of revenue to the state would be massive. and That's not going to be possible. So the incentives that that are driving people towards those are going to disappear. And and the only other choice is going to be coercion. You just say, okay, we're not going to allow people to... As I say, effectively, it will happen, I imagine, first of all, with diesel. There's just not going to be any more diesel cars. 
Anytime I've seen the maths on this done, just the high-level maths of what we would need to get to 50% reduction by 2030 and uh, nat zero by 2050, which is the long-term objective. Yeah. The maths just does not seem to work. When you're looking at increasing levels of consumption across the developing world, it just doesn't make... I've never seen anyone be able to actually add it up in a way that makes sense to me. None of this will make... Nothing we do will literally make the slightest difference. If you buy, though, assuming you buy the underlying axiomatic assumptions about climate change from the Paris Accord and all that, right? Assuming you buy that, none of this, nothing we will do in this economy will make If we look, if India and our China keep doing, opening up coal-fired power generators, and then other countries as they develop go, go in that direction too, because that's, that's the fuel that they may have access to the cheapest one. That's their, that's, that's what they have on underneath their, their ground, and that's what they're going to use. How many, okay, the Chinese economy will eventually mature, but it's that's not the plan at the moment in, in China, and certainly not the plan in India, that they're going to start slowing down economic growth, and that's going to demand energy. It's a point you've made before, Gary, that the central, central key to the modern economy is energy. It is the single, the base thing, and maintaining cheap, relatively speaking, cheap, cheap energy keeps this economy going. How many, I, I, off the top of my, uh, can you remember off the top of your head any kind of rough number? I mean, we, it was a number you used to see a lot about the number of coal-fired stations the Chinese were opening every month or every other year. I mean, it was massive. And in that context, anything we do is going to be meaningless anyway, except it'll be impoverishing. Like we're a rounding error in the grand scheme of things. Um, China has... It's still investing massively into coal. Uh, I don't know what exactly the numbers are now. I, I, I don't. I, I would strongly suspect that this is not a target actually meant to be achieved, but is effectively theatre of some kind. That it's meant to give people something to reach out to and not get it. Because the public, the, the, the political impact, now that the public has something that they can roughly compare it to, like in four years... If you bring up this idea and someone goes, yes, just like the COVID year. Yeah. I don't see that being popular. Well, it, I suppose, yeah, I think probably. But then again. When I was when I was doing, when I was looking into this before the show, I did see a fantastic headline from the Irish Times on this. And it was from last year. And it was, is a 7% annual emissions cut possible? Yes, say NGOs. <laughs> say NGOs. Yeah, it's a- I'm going to, I mean, to be blunt. I don't care what the NGOs say, because it's it's their job to say that this is possible. Anyway, before we go, can I give the people some happy news? Does such a thing happen anymore? Well, slightly happy news. I mean, happy news in the, in the middle of the bad news. The Israelis are doing it again, Gary. Now, as we know, the Israelis are on this turbocharged boot uh, vaccination program. However, there is some rather interesting news coming out of Tel Aviv, in the Tel Aviv's Ichilov Hospital, which is Professor Nadir Aber, who is the head of the Integrated Cancer Prevention Centre there, has been testing a medication for COVID. And he's been testing it on patients with a moderate and serious condition suffering from the virus. And he has had a 95% positive result. Now, the sample of patients was only 30, but of the 30, 29 were given the drug, showed a marked improvement within two days, and were released from hospital within three to five days. 
Now, and these, as I say, a number of these patients were, were seriously ill. One other patient, the other patient, also did recover, but her took a couple, a few days longer. In another hospital, not 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 good enough to have one drug on the and the vaccines going. Um, in another medical center in Jerusalem, they have been experimenting with a drug called Allocetra, and the doctor said that of the twenty-one patients in a critical condition, and that's that's the the big thing, isn't it? Because there have been a number of drugs which have been shown to be effective with people with mild to moderate uh COVID, but they've been struggling to find anything that works. These were patients with a who are in a critical condition with underlying conditions. Nineteen of the twenty-one patients recovered within six days and were released from hospital on an average of after eight days. The drug was developed by Professor Mavorash, uh, the director of the research for rheumatology there, and was designed to deal with an overactive immune system that caused the secretion of cytokines. Do you remember, Gary, we, 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 we learned all about cytokine storms? Oh, that was fun. That was the big thing at the time. So apparently, so there are some very good news, and they're, the, they're now going on to the Health Ministry Helsinki Committee in Israel to extend, extend the trial to see if... Uh, it can be more. It can be effective for more uh, people. That, but that's some. That's some good news there. And um, and it could be that Israel not only will be the first country to get the country to get everybody vaccinated. They, they'll also be the people that discover the drug that can. Uh, and also, by the way, the first in the first case, the drug is inexpensive and effective, given once daily for five days. It's a drug which already exists and therefore is has an established safety record which would be just brilliant so it that's uh, that's some good news um and just the last piece of news uh, the indians the indians gary have announced that uh, the numbers are i mean when you look at our little country and you look at india and you look at the numbers one of the things indians do i don't know if you're aware of this they don't use the same numbers that we do they don't use billions and stuff they use lakhs and cores and stuff, and I always have to translate them in Google Translate what they mean. Anyway, in the space of eighteen days, they they managed in eighteen days. I think what was it? they managed to vaccinate uh, over four million people in eighteen days. <laughs> they are planning. They have already vaccinated forty four million. Well, forty four million have been vaccinated. They plan. Uh, by April to have vaccinated 30 million, 30 million healthcare workers and frontline workers. You know, but that they are now looking at, they will soon begin the process of of vaccinating the priority population of those who are aged above 50 years. So while obviously one of the reasons they have, let's face it, our demographics are different. We have, as a proportion of our population, a larger number of people who are over 75 and over 85 than India does. It's a much younger population and fewer people who are at, who live to the extreme. However, it is possible on some of the numbers there that India, having started much later, but now beginning its production, its own native production of the vaccines at the uh, Vaccination Institute, will actually start may outstrip us unless we start to get much much quicker very soon may actually out, outstrip us in its vaccination program which is good news for india not so much good news for us but we should be happy for the indians but isn't that incredible third 
healthcare workers and frontliners, 30 million will have to be vaccinated. Now, that's a logistical problem, Gary. If you want a nightmare, if you want to complain about, well, this is going to be very hard to do, think about those numbers. Now, if they can do it in India, why the hell can't we do it in a long weekend over here? Slightly unfairly said that India is not a country so much as a variety of locations tied together with a train network. Uh, But they do have immense logistical issues, including, and I think people do forget this, the lack of a common language. Yeah, in fact, more so than as but Hindi is 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 used. But English, once you, particularly when you go into the into the Tamil South, you're probably as well off speaking. You're you're probably maybe certainly better off speaking English than uh, than Hindi uh, in some places as a second language. It is kind of this. Well, it's, I think it's an official language actually in English, but it's a kind of the unofficial second language, the language of business. So there you go. So well done to the Indians and well done to the Israelis, and let's hope the Israelis have got it right. That would be good news. Take the name down, and if we ever get sick, we can say to the doctor, please fill my prescription. Give me what the Israelis had. Anyway. So we will be back on Sunday, and if any listener knows anyone who would be good to interview on the environmental stuff, I don't mean, like, climate sceptic or whatever, just someone on the actual numbers and what is actually possible here, that would be great. Yeah, that would be interesting. Okay, but until then, mind yourselves, and we'll talk again on Sunday. All the best.